All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 141. It's Tuesday night. I'm your host, Bob Akayeri. It's always a good time to talk college football, but Tuesday nights are when we like to talk to you. So I'm going to go ahead and fire this up. Just going to go ahead and send a quick instruction. Always want to hear from you. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, you can always hit request on the Twitter app. Should work for you, and I will be happy to let you up and hear about what you're thinking as we head into the week. It's funny, each week that proceeds after the lull that comes right after the national championship, which kind of bottoms out in February, things start to pick up and the news starts to build. So there's so much going on. If you have a thought you want to add, feel free to chime in. You know, one of the things I'm just going to kind of dive right into, a lot of kind of discussion has been going on on the NIL front because as I have mentioned in before and, and if you've been paying attention to what's been going on all the states in the offseason have been coming up with their own ways to sort of revise their NIL rules and that's kind of created an interesting situation with multiple states with different rules in them and one of those pushes that's been coming and again I'm not saying this is what we support um, is a federal regulation, and apparently there's various groups in Congress that are trying to get this done. One of the ones that kind of struck me that popped up actually this past week um, was reporting by Dennis Dodd is a subcommittee. They're trying to create a federal regulatory body to oversee NIL rights for college football and college sports in general. I guess they even have a name for it. It sounds really fancy. The uh, United States Intercollegiate Athletics Commission, the USIAC. So their idea is they want to create something that would permit uh, a way to allow NIL deals, give the NCAA some legal protection, and I guess categorically say athletes can't be employees. Now, I'm not sure if, the, uh, frankly, I think we're going in that direction, but we'll see. And again, it's one of these attempts to create a potential regulatory body on a national level. And and that again, as I said, that's not the only one. Uh, there's apparently some con- that one I just mentioned was coming from some congressmen from Florida. And then meanwhile, some Ohio congressmen are trying to create something called the student athlete level playing field act to create federal standards for NIL and clarifying that athletes aren't employees. That again, seems to be a kind of common theme. It's not entirely shocking to see this only because Charlie Baker, the uh, new NCAA president has been uh, trying to push some federal regulation on this. Uh, one of the things, and to kind of put this in a larger context, we talked about this. Oklahoma was the state that first came up with this legislative idea that was a popular NIL bill that got sidetracked. We'll get to that in a second. But they, are, they passed a bill, or at least they created a bill, that would not allow NCA investigations in the state of Oklahoma on any NIL deal. So in a way, creating a level of protection around Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and Tulsa, of course. Now, it kind of got sidetracked because in a totally, and I mean, I mean, this had nothing to do with this particular bill, but the governor of the state vetoed every single bill on his desk saying he wasn't going to pass anything without some uh, of his, again, I'm not going to get into the state politics of Oklahoma, but it was basically he was saying, I'm not going to pass anything until you give me this particular law on my desk. Well, apparently this past week, the Oklahoma legislature finally got around to overriding that veto. 120 to 13 because college sports are very bipartisan and now Oklahoma has a law that will allow college players to have agents for NIL deals 
and block NCA investigations into NIL deals. Of course, while all of this was going on in Oklahoma, Missouri topped everyone with their own law a few weeks ago. Mizzou uh, is basically the main beneficiary of this, unless Truman State decides it wants to become an FBS power. Um, so if you are a high school student in Mizzou and you sign an NIL deal with a university in the state, or pardon me, a, uh, if you sign, pardon me, not, if you say you're going to go, if you sign that letter of intent, you're, as a high school player in the state of Missouri, allowed to have an NIL deal, and the, uh, their own law says the state cannot investigate you. So again, this kind of weird, like each state is coming up with their own rules, has started to create, unsurprisingly, a bit of tension. And within the granddaddy of all the conferences right now in terms of money, the SEC, because you have states that are now looking at each other and teams that are looking at each other and saying, well, okay, Florida won't allow this as a state, but Missouri will. Oklahoma, which is, of course, joining the SEC, can get away with some things. And Texas, I believe, is also passing laws that are similar to that. So that's where some of this push and pull is coming from when you're hearing discussions about, oh, is there going to be federal legislation or will it just stay in the state? It's a lot of a lot of fan bases are looking at what's going on in neighboring states. And it's kind of part of what makes this such an interesting time. You know, there was another. And again, if you'd like to join this conversation or anything about college football, I'm not we're not just stuck talking about NAL. I just wanted to kind of discuss this stuff at the beginning of this particular half hour only because. It's been kind of an interesting set of developments this week. But again, if you'd like to join the conversation, hit request on the Twitter app, and I'd be happy to let you up and hear what you're thinking. But going back to, again, one of the uh, sort of the, the far, one of the, I wouldn't say an extreme position, but Joel Klatt, obviously college football uh, uh, personality, he thinks the parameters surrounding the NIL have gone way too far towards the players and thinks that perhaps they're getting handed too much money and this isn't something that they're quite ready for. I know that isn't necessarily the most popular view, especially on our CFB. Um, got a lot of a pushback on that. But as we get into this two-year mark of NIL, he thinks that uh, they need to, to revise it, and um, and especially uh, the pendulum he feels has swung too far and it needs to come back a little bit. I'm not sure if the genie can be put back into the bottle there. I think uh, one of the things, and, and I'm going to go actually to someone on RCFB, because, you know, the comment sections are pretty good. One of the better comments on that particular topic was actually a Texas A&M fan, Lib Southerner. I think NIL is fine on its own. I think the transfer portal is fine on its own. But together, like a completely, it's like a completely unabated free agency for every single player every single year, which isn't good for any sport. If players are going to get paid, which I support, they need to be recognized as full employees. So I guess he wants to go the full employees route. I'm not sure I'm a... I'm not sure that's going to work out, but certainly that's one of those options that's been out there. You know, speaking on that same topic, actually, today there was actually a good article uh, put out on The Athletic via uh, David Oven, friend of the program. Uh, and Nick Saban was asked about this, and he says, you know, I have no problem having players be employees, but he gave an ominous warning. He's like, if you think there's disparity in college football now, there's going to be a lot more in the future. And that is something where in these circumstances, we've seen uh, Coach Saban basically give those kinds of warnings. You know, he, he said that before when NAL was coming up. It's like, if you want to go down this path, he knows he's at Alabama and he's Nick Saban. He can get the money. He can, 
he can compete at the top, top level. But it's more or less a warning to every school but like four or five that if you're willing to do this, can you get into that kind of competition? I mean, we know that there is a test, you know, Tennessee freshman QB uh, signed a deal with Spire Sports, which is associated with the uh, University of Tennessee that's going to pay him apparently $8 million over four years. We all, or most of you have probably heard of the old Jalen Rashada saga, which would have you know, supposedly paid him $13 million to go to Florida over four years, but it fell apart. Now he's at Arizona State. Still probably getting a good amount of money, but not silly that kind of money. So again, we're seeing a lot of this kind of heading out there. Um, at one point, I believe he even made a comment that, you know, you're seeing Southern Cal, Texas, and Oklahoma doing their thing. And it, it seemed like Nick Saban was basically using the bat signal to tell his own boosters that, hey, keep sending money. We need this to win. And again, knowing Nick Saban, I'm not even going to, he really does think that all, everything he does is about recruiting. And he knows that that is the absolute way to, to building a program and a beast of a program like he has. And like one of his disciples, Kirby Smart, has done in Georgia right now. On a lighter note, um, before I kind of wrap up this NIL Collective talk, you know, Harvard boosters, and this is this is actually from a little over a week ago, but it looks like Harvard boosters are starting an NIL collective. The athletics department sent an email to supporters explaining it doesn't sanction or support the group soliciting donations to start the collective. But if there is a university or one of those universities that has the ability to just decide to become a college football player, it is the Ivy League teams, particularly Harvard and Yale. I mean, their endowments are in the tens of billions of dollars. Their <laughs> alumni are worth in the tens of billions of dollars. If they really wanted to compete at these levels, they certainly could. And plus they have a, you know, a little department called admissions, which can you know make or break a lot of people's careers. If football doesn't work out for you, imagine getting an NIL, a great NIL deal at Harvard and also graduating with a Harvard degree or a Yale degree. And maybe one day Stanford will learn how to, to twist that into their own favor. Um, on that note, again, just a quick reminder, this is our CFB Talk 141. I'm Bob Akairi. This is really Tuesday nights. So we'd like to hear from you. So if you'd like to you know, hit request and join the conversation about whatever topic you'd like in college football, we'd love to have you up here, and I'll be happy to hear from you and, and let you up. You know, kind of moving on to a, another topic that's been kind of interesting this week is there's been rumblings out of Colorado. Uh, Dennis Dodd had a couple of article, actually an article today with a couple of tweets that were associated with it, that Colorado has held substantive talks with the Big 12 as the Buffaloes considering, consider leaving the Pac-12. I don't think any of that is entirely shocking. I think in this, as we've I've jokingly said, this grand knife fight that is potentially going to break out between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 for the scraps of what remained after both conferences lost their two marquee teams to the uh, Big 10 and SEC, respectively. One of those things is who's going to come out ahead? And you have, you know, Klyovkov, who's more of a quiet commissioner at the Pac-12. You have Yormark, who's more brash and interesting. I mean, he keeps... You know, trying to be dynamic and, and announce interesting you know, uh, ideas that they're going to be doing at the Big 12. So where are these teams going to lie? And obviously the big push has been whether or not the Big 12 can perhaps lure the, uh, the four corner schools, the two Arizona schools, plus Utah, plus Colorado, 
or is there going to be a rush between those two conferences to try and get San Diego State, who seems to be the one the Pac-12 would like to add to get back to 12 teams and perhaps adding SMU along with that to bring the Metroplex into the Pac-12. It's kind of an interesting situation, but what this article kind of brought out is what people have assumed is that there has been conversations sort of behind the scenes between the Colorado and the Big 12 just to sort of see if there is something going on. And they actually had a heck of a quote in there. You know, the athletic director, Rick George of Colorado, said, I have no comment other than what I said last week, which, okay, that doesn't sound great, but we are proud members of the Pac-12, which always sounds ominous. In a perfect world, we'd love to be in the Pac-12, but we also have to do what is right for Colorado at the end of the day, which is brutally honest. I think that's ultimately what a lot of conference teams are thinking. I think USC would have loved to have stayed and UCLA would have loved to have stayed in the Pac-12, but in the end, they did what they felt was right for their programs. USC just wanted more money and UCLA desperately needed more money because of the way their athletic department was uh, in a bit of debt. So ultimately, that's what it's going to come down to. And of course, we know that the media rights deal that uh, right now the Big 12 is offering appears to be $31.7 million beginning in 2025. So right now, and I think the delay on finding out what the Pac-12 media deal is going to be is they are desperately trying to make sure they can come either extremely close or, or well beyond that number to maintain those programs that are left that have a certain level of desirability outside of the conference. Obviously, you have Oregon, you have Washington, and then you have Colorado, Utah, and the Arizona schools. And, and I'm not saying I'm not trying to say Cal, Stanford, Wazoo, and, and uh, Oregon State aren't worth anything. But I mean, it, it's going to be an interesting point there. You know, even Deion Sanders, who I, of course is a lightning rod in and of his own self has said he thinks none of it would be happening. I mean, pardon me, they said none of it would be happening if Dion wasn't willing to sign off on it. Dennis Dodd said he was told that Dion Sanders wants to get Colorado back into Texas, um, which some people joked sounded like he was planning to relocate the campus. But again, as some of most of you probably know, since you're listening to college football talk in the offseason, Colorado, that was where they were from. They were from the Big 12, and this would be their opportunity to perhaps go back home. Um, to not say that there isn't a desire in the Pac-12 for them to stay there. But again, this is one of those things where there seems to be a push and a pull within that program on whether they stay in the Pac-12 or if there's a reason for them to go back to the Big 12. Speaking of which... This was a, a post that came up on RCFB actually within the last hour and is related to this. The Oregon, uh, University of Oregon AD, Rob Mullins, had an interview where he was confident that the Pac-12 will beat that uh, aforementioned $31 million, I think $31.6, $31.7 million per year that the Big 12 is going to be paying out in media to its own team starting in 2025. Um, his concerns were only over the future home and home of uh, P5 out of conference scheduling under the new playoff format and said, and this was interesting, the Pac-12 could look at a 10-game conference schedule. Now, we've talked about one of the big topics this week as the SEC is having its own meetings is whether or not that conference is going to move from an eight-team conference schedule to a nine-team conference schedule. Nine-team is what most of the other conferences are doing particularly the Pac-12. The Pac-12 started doing a nine-team conference schedule when it was still the Pac-10. So it was actually doing round-robin for uh, several years there to try and keep itself 
at a higher level of competition when it was trying to, again, vie for BCS ranking. Now, heading into, you know, the Pac-12, they still stuck with a nine-game uh, a nine-game conference season, so teams weren't necessarily playing everybody every year because they were able to switch to divisions. But now, apparently, with the risk to out-of-conference scheduling in the new expanded playoff, the Pac-12 is considering, according to the athletic director of the University of Oregon, moving to a 10-game conference schedule. Um, he said in his own right that he prefers nine conference games with one high-profile out-of-conference opponent, which is usually a P5 opponent, one G5, and one FCS program, um, but noted that finding a high-profile opponent is becoming, quote, increasingly difficult. Uh, he noted that the Texas A&M had canceled the series with Oregon, uh, again, as they were joining the SEC, and that forced them to scramble and pay you know, $1.6 million to get San Jose State to show up and uh, change their schedule to make a trip to Eugene. So again, um, this seems to be something interesting. And when the Pac-12 sort of conference mentioning here, it is interesting to hear, again, another athletic director there seeming confident. And supposedly they're privy to the conversations over these media rights deals that the Pac-12 will either equal or beat the Big 12's media deal at this point and stay together. And really, it sounds like in this case, they're just trying to move on and figure out what the future is going to be in terms of conference scheduling, especially if that is um, something that they are not able to, to maintain the level of out-of-conference scheduling that they had planned. Um, moving over to, again, what we were just talking about there on the SEC, one of the big things there has been whether or not they're going to expand from a team an eight-team conference schedule to a nine-team conference schedule, or I should say nine-game conference schedule. Moving the 16 teams, there's been a lot of discussion of how that's going to work out. They're going to have guaranteed uh, games every year. I believe each team is going to be having several guaranteed opponents. They're major rivals as well as some uh, connected regional teams. They're going to go, obviously, break away from divisions. So now the question is, how do you... How do you spread the love more and how do you make sure teams get an opportunity to play and have a high level of play um, with what's going on? I know from what the discussions that are coming out of the, uh, the SEC in terms of what the presidents are wanting and the athletic directors and the coaches, there seems to be a little bit of a separation here. You have a school like Georgia. It seems like Alabama and some of the other stronger teams are in favor of potentially adding an extra conference game. Well, some of the other teams that tend to be right on that border of bowl eligibility and at the cusp of trying to break out like a Kentucky, um, and a, they seem to be in favor of keeping the eight conference games and then allowing to throw in some, I don't want to say <laughs> chaff, but throw in you know some more games against G5 opponents or even FCS opponents. Um, and there's a question of, and, and here comes the push and pull in all of that, you have some, you know, coaches like, you know, LSU's. Um, oh my gosh, my own brain is totally fried on me now. Uh, that are, you know, they uh, they uh, you know, uh, they're. He says, you know, if we're gonna have another, if we're gonna have, you know, compete for TV rights, we should be putting out a higher end. A high, uh, Brian Kelly said, you know, TV demands great matchups. You've got to put in front of your fan base quality competition. I think. If the TV rights deals keep increasing, 
I don't know. I'd be curious to know the numbers, and I'd love to see the economists who work for these conferences crack those numbers to see how much value there is for these home games um, that against an FCS opponent or against a G5 opponent versus what they could be getting in TV money if they schedule more marquee games and make every week a you know must-see TV for college football fans on a national level, not just the hardcore fans are going to watch your team play, you know, I'm not going to name, I'm not going to single out any FCS program, but just a FCS program versus those that would like to see a game between either your marquee program and a P5 or even a, a strong G5 program. Um, that certainly would be better for TV. And, and if TV is really what's driving a lot of these deals, a lot of these, um, these, these movements within college football, I think it's, it's hard not to, to see that again. Um, taking a quick second for, uh, Station ID, this is RCFB Talk 141. I'm Bob Akhairi, your host. <laughs> if anyone wants to join the conversation, please hit request. It doesn't have to be any of the topics we've just touched on. Whatever you find interesting in college football, we'd love to hear you talk about it. Love to hear your thoughts on it. So hit request on the Twitter app, and I'd be happy to let you up here. But um, in the meantime, kind of, again, tying in both the SEC as well as conference expansion talk, SEC's Greg Sankey was asked uh, again this week, uh, actually today, because, again, they're having their meetings right now. Brett McMurphy tweeted that uh, he was asked about expanding beyond 16 schools. And he commented, this is not on the forefront at all. It isn't even an active thought process for the SEC. Quote, we are highly attentive of what's going around the country, in which case they are looking at what's going on right now. But the idea of adding the SEC, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, I, again, going to some of the comments by some of the folks on RCFB, one of the better comments was by, I think, LSU fan, then Cricket2312, and I will read the uh, username because why not? I want to credit the guy. Um, the SEC would probably be happiest if nothing else happens right now. And this is the part I like. I think they'd rather the ACC stay alive, which keeps the Big Ten out of the South. And I, I kind of like that thought because while FSU and Clemson certainly have voiced, and we've talked about it before, an interest in leaving the ACC to, of course, the problem is the ACC had some top-notch lawyers design the grant of rights deal, which is locking them all into a conference um, media arrangement with a brutal buyout that I believe Florida State had calculated in February was going to be like $120 million to leave. But it sounds like FSU has always liked the idea of joining the SEC. Apparently, they flirted with it decades ago, um, but were not accepted in favor, I believe, of expansion that went to South Carolina at the time. And Clemson would also very much like to, because they have certainly have some ties with SEC programs historically, um, not just South Carolina, but also, obviously, you know, Georgia and, and, and some of the others. So those two would love to move. But the problem is what would happen to all the other teams? And not all of them, they're not all junk, obviously. So you get a team like, the question is, would Virginia or North Carolina or Virginia Tech or Miami or Georgia Tech, because it's in Atlanta and you're suddenly in the heart of Georgia, would any of those suddenly become desirable additions or the Big Ten, because suddenly, if money, pardon me, if the money is being determined by TV viewers, and suddenly the Big Ten can get some teams in that region, suddenly you've got some competition. And I, that's why I thought that comment 
about the SEC having somewhat of a, a selfish interest in the survival of the ACC seemed to be a good observation. And I kind of I appreciated reading that one because if the ACC breaks apart, while the Big Ten has been very lukewarm to the idea of adding teams when it was looking west, they, as much as Oregon and Washington desperately want to get out of the Pac-12 and join something like the Big Ten, it wasn't entirely clear if that interest was mutual. Um, certainly, if the ACC broke apart, the money would be hard to ignore if suddenly the Atlanta market or, or Florida popped into, into, the, uh, into the equation for, for potentially adding a team. So again, the SEC, though, happy to stay at 16 per their commissioner, and I don't have any reason... To doubt that, you know, I was mentioning this bat signal comment that Nick Saban threw up, but Brett McMurphy, again, another good tweet from him uh, from today. Nick Saban said, you know, quote, you think there's parity here? I think the way Southern Cal, Texas and Texas A&M are spending money, it hasn't hit yet. It's going to be what are you willing to spend? So, again, you know, they're talking about whether or not it's like the NFL or if it's really not like the NFL. And, uh, you know, Nebraska fan, uh, perpiacious crumb, this, ladies and gentlemen, is what's called a bat signal or a booster whistle or something to get some of those Alabama boosters ready to start competing um, into that higher level of finances. And, and maybe that's part of it. And, and I, there was an interesting kind of editorial published in the, uh, the Athletic recently where someone was deriding where all of this is going and saying, like, we, if we're going to turn into the NFL – um, that would be something where you have salary caps. But right now, this is this is just seemed to be turning into a freewheeling world of uh, of unlimited money um, and some very curious uh, decisions that are being made. Um, Ross Dellinger over at SI actually had another kind of article on the same topic that came out recently. In a trend sweeping through the SEC, schools are exploring ways to operate name, image, likeness, NIL, from their foundations. Now, that technically violates NCA rules and risks Title IX infractions and straddles the employment line. But at the same time, they're all just trying to compete with each other with these weird rules that kind of differ now state by state. As I was talking at the beginning of the show, what's going on in Oklahoma, what's going on in Mizzou, what's going on in Texas, each of those state legislatures have passed looser rules and what were recently passed in even Florida, which had technically just loosened its own rules and in Alabama. So you're getting these weird zones where SEC teams are looking at how other SEC teams can compete and they're having to make quick bandages in order to solve it because I'm sure they could get their states to pass another rule law again, but that takes time. So what they need to do is they need to win now. So again, you've got these interesting competitions going on all around there. So that was an interesting, I think, article by Dellinger, and, and I, I recommend it if you get a chance. Um, kind of moving along. You know, poor, <laughs> poor Coach Drinkwitz at Mizzou, he got a really, he got a quote taken out of context. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about what he actually said here. So some, there was a claim that he was complaining about player compensation. And I see we have someone who wants to come up, so I'm going to let you up in a second, triple option. He said, you know, I'm no way comp complaining about player compensation on pro NIL. And then he pointed to a, uh, he was talking about the state law that I talked about that allows, it's probably one of the loosest NIL rules out there right now. It allows for um, 
high school players who have signed letters of intent to receive can receive NIL deals in the state of Missouri as long as they're going to a Missouri school. So again, that, that benefits Mizzou. He's just asking for guardrails. And, and that was something that, that he wanted to um, emphasize. Uh, you know, he, he said, you know, this is again, the question was a reporter asked uh, Coach Drink, when you see issues with gambling, because that was obviously a big thing, which kind of blew up at the two, excuse me, the two Iowa schools uh, in the past month. When you see issues with gambling arising, what's your approach with your team about that issue? And is there an element of surprise or is it inevitable? Coach Drink, this is sort of his reply. You all are really trying to get me in trouble here with a bit of a, a probably a, a laughing sigh. You know, Dion. this is again Coach Drink speaking. Deion Sanders had a really good quote the other day talking about young men are joining a business, but we want to treat them like kids. We're giving guys 18, 19, 23-year-olds, probably 22-year-olds, life-changing money. People are making more money in NIL than my brother-in-law, who is a pediatrician, who saves lives. And we are doing it in a cavalier, and we think um, that there's not going to be any side effect. There's not going to be any issues. There's information out there. There's bad actors always trying to make a dollar. I think it's going to be, become one of those key issues that we face in our locker rooms. I think it's more prevalent because there's more money involved. Everyone is trying to make a dollar. These young men are getting a lot of money that is a lot right now, uh, other than trying to hand out advice and provide some parameters to you. Uh, with this NIL situation, we've created our own problems in the college sport. So, you know, it seems to be a fairly balanced, I think, view on all of it from Coach Drink at Mizzou. But we, I want to go ahead and let up triple option is king. Feel free to unmute when you get up here. would love to hear your thoughts on what's going on. What's going on? So I have a quick hypothetical question for you. It's a hypothetical scenario to run through. So uh, you're a truck driver. You're driving down the highway. You see four people who want to hitchhike a ride. You can only give one of them a ride. It's three head coaches and one former college football player. It's Coach Drinkwitz, Lane Kiffin, Shane Beamer, and Craig James. Who are you giving a ride to and why? <laughs> <laughs> can i can i well i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna try and run over any of them that was my first thought but i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna step back and i'm not saying i'm gonna aim the truck at, at any one of them but i i have i have had the opportunity to talk to lane kiffin a couple of times when he was really i wouldn't say at the bottom but when he had just started at fau like the preseason media days and i kind of was like i kind of think this guy I, I didn't expect to i didn't expect to like him as much so I, I would kind of I would enjoy hanging out with Lane Kiffin because I think he'd be a pretty fun guy to just like if I'm stuck in a car and I have to have a conversation with somebody for a long period of time, I'm pretty sure he'd be interesting. Actually, to be fair, I've yet to talk to a head coach who wouldn't be interesting. I think the only difference is and most of this gener the generation I'm about to talk about is no longer there. I mean, it's like maybe Nick Saban and a few others, but some of the older school head coaches, you'd be mostly just sitting and listening to them talk, and you wouldn't be kind of just happy to ask them a question that they would find interesting. But a lot of the other younger coaches, frankly, they'd just be fun guys to talk to. I mean, how do they get these young men to go play for them? I mean, it's like it, they, they got a personality. I mean, most of the guys are at the P5 level. You had to have been successful at the G5 level in some way or as a head coach or you were a good uh, you know, um, a coordinator of some sort. But how do you get young men to come play for you? You got to be interesting to a lot of them. And and unless you can pull off the uh, I'm the all knowing dad thing, which is hard to do, especially I think Gen X and younger, it's not really in the wheelhouse of the skill set that a lot of folks were kind of 
you know, culturally growing up watching TV, watching whatever, you know, you just you're not used to that personality, being that personality at that age zone. So I think if I were to if I were to pick of of that group, I would probably pick Lane Kiffin, but I, I can't imagine Drink would be any it would be any different. I think he'd be a fun guy just to talk to. If we're just if we're just looking for who's gonna be and I love that question again. Thank you for that triple option. Just you know, who would be the person you would pick in that group? But Craig James, no, I, I wouldn't know. That I wouldn't want him in. I wouldn't even want to deal with him. I'd be like, oh, I, I pretend I wouldn't have even seen him. I'm like, hey, isn't that the guy with the with the with the women of the night or no never mind oh, oh, but you know I, just, I, I i couldn't do that one but uh but thanks for that that was actually a really great question and you know actually it's been about 30 minutes it was so much to go over i didn't even get through everything i wanted to talk about you know i'm gonna just bring up a couple of other quick news items I'm not gonna belabor them but i just there was some really interesting stuff as i said in the off season as we kind of steam ahead and get closer to the season more stuff starts to come out one of the funnier things i got announced on a lot and funny is relative, I know. But Texas AM, they have announced their maroon out game where everyone's gonna wear maroon is against Mississippi State, which is a maroon team. So I'm not sure how much that's gonna be intimidating to the opposing program when they are also a maroon team. But we we got that one coming here. You know what? Um, I see Quinshawn is him uh in the audience. He wants to come up and talk. I'd love to hear from you. Um, I don't mind extending this a bit longer. You've been such a good listener for so many, uh, so many weeks. What's going on? What's up? Hey, what's going on? Uh, what's on your mind? Uh, I, I've been looking at this like stuff for a week, and I've been really wondering about what do you think of Missouri this year? <laughs> oh my goodness! And of course. Oh my! Oh, where's our Mizzou guy? He's not even on. He's been on break for a couple of weeks. Yo, I Mizzou. The big question is, and we were just talking about Coach Drink a second ago, but the question is, can they can they keep improving on where they are? Can they get into that seven, eight, nine win situation? I don't know. It's a tough schedule for them. We've kind of talked about it in previous weeks. Um, I think, you know, Coach Drink, being at Mizzou, there's expectations are a little more tempered. Um, he certainly was successful uh, in his previous stop at App State, but but Mizzou is it's it's tough if you're in the same division as as Georgia, Tennessee, you know, uh, and South Carolina and Kentucky seem to be the teams you're jockeying for in position to try and and claw your way to a decent finish within the division. But again, you, you have to be realistic. You got Georgia right there, so that's that's a huge huge problem in and of itself. So how far can they go? Uh, you know, they've got some reasonable starting path they they've got actually a, a, an ideal kind of runway with their first two games they've got an fcs tune up with south dakota middle tennessee which of course you know miami learned that they are not exactly the uh, a pushover last season but they've got middle tennessee and then they've got probably one of the most interesting early season games for two programs that want to prove themselves one wants to prove that last year wasn't a fluke and that's kansas state um, which again will probably go into that game with wins against Southwest Missouri State, probably Southeast Missouri State and Troy. And, you know, they'll probably, both teams will probably go into that 2 and 0, and it'll be a, a moment to see which program is on the rise. And then beyond that, you know, they got a couple of more winnable games. They're going to be playing Memphis and St. Louis. They are going to be playing at Vanderbilt. And then they've got, again, sort of a tough slog as they get into the heart of the SEC schedule with LSU coming in to Columbia. They got at Kentucky, South Carolina. It, 
Pulling out a bowl season there is doable, certainly. I think they've got at least four easy wins and then and then several games that should be dogfights. But going beyond that, it would take a little bit of luck. So Mizzou, that's going to be the challenge for them and how much patience uh, that program has for uh, Coach Drink is, you know, he's now, gosh, he's headed into year four. So this is usually a, po- a point in time where you want to see more improvement. And again, it's it, it's been bulls every year, but they've been, you know, not the greatest. And, and again, the win-loss record has not been stellar. So we'll see. That, it's a good question. And, and Mizzou is certainly one of those that, that's going to be an interesting mystery for, for how they're going to turn out. And I know a lot of folks in that that fan base are very curious to see. I know, I mean, some of them were ready to throw them under the bus, Coach Trink under the bus last season, but he was able to keep them in it. And, they, and I think some folks were willing to give a, he was able to get some of them uh, back on his side, at least willing to give them a little more room to see where they're going to go. You know, before we close, another interesting story kind of tying in to the big kind of NIL stuff that happens in the offseason. BYU, there was an article again. This is something that came out in the Salt Lake Tribune. BYU football players were starting to say that companies were under-delivering, under-delivering, under-delivering on promises to pay athletes through NIL. I, I'm sure this is not the only program and the only players to be seeing this. But again, we're only two years into NIL and I'm wondering how many of these are really happening out there where players are getting promised things from local companies or, or you know, uh, booster organizations, collectives, and they're just simply not getting it. We've heard, of course, the Deshaun, uh, um, the, pardon me, the Rashadas uh, debacle over at Florida where they just couldn't deliver the money they had promised. But looking at this, you know, uh, this this seems to be one of those tip of the iceberg kind of stories there. Another interesting story that came out early on about a week ago, a little less than a week ago, Feinbaum said that Florida State is not nearly as attractive as they think they are regarding a move to the SEC. Um, Again, I I always like to look at what folks on RCFB like to say, and I got a real kick out of Arizona State fan, temporary product, uh, 928's response. He put a translation that ESPN likes having FSU content at ACC prices. I would really prefer not to pay the Knowles the SEC price. So <laughs> I, I think, and another fan pointed out, like if that conference broke up and suddenly the Big Ten were looking at Florida State, the uh, that fine bomb would would change his opinion quite quite quickly. And for Iowa State, pardon me, uh, University of Iowa fans, Gary Barta, the athletic director, has is announced his retirement. Um, so. That seems to be pleasing quite a few of them. Now the question is what comes next. Uh, again, another joke off of RCFB. That means Kirk Ferentz is going to be there. Would that mean he'll be their athletic director and Brian Ferentz will be their new head coach? Well, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, on all of that, it has been now a little over 30 minutes. Generally, Tuesday nights in the offseason, we keep this show to about 30 minutes. My name's Bob Akhayeri. We'd like to hear your calls, although it's more me just kind of talking, and I appreciate you all joining me. This was RCFB Talk 141. Now I'm a hang up and listen. <laughs>